0: How we doing? Good? Some good? Some sick? They're not here, they're sick. Some are just hanging on. Got it. But you're here. But You're here. Praise God. All right. Well, we're glad to see you. If we have people in the parking lot, we're glad you're here. We got people here, we're glad you're here. Uh, Maybe this sermon will be recorded and you're listening to it someday down the line. I hope some of it's useful to you. So uh, the elders have asked me uh, to start a new sermon series. So we're going to do that together today. We're going to be talking about baptism. And I think this recognizes that as a church community... We've grown, and in this room, and in our body here, we have represented a pretty wide variety of church experiences. And additionally, we all have a personal history with the Lord. We've all been through uh, specific circumstances that have formed us and shaped us. We've had to learn some things as we've grown and lived and survived in this life. Uh, many of us, we don't understand everything exactly the same. So, baptism. Why do we want to uh, potentially rock the boat in some ways talking about this? We have different kinds of problems that we're facing in this church. We have health crises We have people under attack, struggling with different health crises, from hearts to pancreas to blood sugar, cancer issues, eye issues, and it seems to come in clusters, because it's not just one person suffering from these things. And then all of a sudden there's this dash of sciatica, a bunch of people are dealing with that. I never heard that word sciatica so much. We have relationship crises that we're facing between parents and children. We're struggling with missing generations of our children. We have marriages in crisis. We have commitment issues. We have families that are way too busy and distracted by many things. And then why today do I want to throw a potentially theologically uh, sensitive issue into the mix? And I think, you know, as I approach this and I thought about it, you know, sometimes baptism, the discussions that I've had with people, it can feel like a certain theological powder keg ready to go off. Uh, But here's the deal. As disciples of Jesus Christ we can never shrink back from having the hard conversations of just searching the scriptures together and trying to come to an understanding of them. You know, as long as God allows me by his grace to be the minister of this church, there are certain things that we're going to do. You know, I, I serve at the pleasure, at the leisure of this church under this eldership. But I have a say in the things that we're going to be doing and learning and teaching, and I take that role very seriously under the Lord. And as long as by grace of the grace of God I'm allowed to be the minister of this church, we're never going to stop seeking to understand and apply the truth of the Bible to our lives. That's a commitment that I make to you. We're never going to stop interceding on behalf of others in prayer. Prayer needs to be a lifeblood of this church. We're never going to stop asking God for miracles of healing and miracles of faith that we know are impossible apart from him. I would bold-facedly pray for your miracle if you ask me to. We're never going to stop fighting our temptations that we face. We're never going to stop fighting to recover our lost children, children we've lost to the world. We're never going to stop fighting for the integrity and healing of our relationships. We're never going to stop fighting for our marriages. Fight for your marriage. We're never going to stop trying to build in this place a community. We're never going to stop seeking to understand and get more involved in the ministry of the Lord than the work of discipleship. We're going to continue to embrace constant confession, continual repentance, unceasing devotion, humility, humility so that the Holy Spirit can have his way with us and lead us into all he wants to give us. We're not going to stop celebrating. We're not going to stop seeking the joy of the Lord and what he alone can give us. You know, we just can't stop. We don't have that luxury. We can never stop seeking good because the love of Jesus Christ has already changed everything for us. Well, one thing I love about our restoration movement is that it's really not a denomination. Uh, I mean, people will say Church of Christ like more denomination, but we're not a denomination in the same sense that other churches are a denomination. What I mean by that is this. This is an early slogan of the restoration movement. We're not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. Christians only. We recognize that God is doing all kinds of things in this world. But our desire and our quest is to follow the teachings of the Bible in the simplest, clearest, and most straightforward way possible. And might I add, when we find it there in Scripture, to just be obedient to it, to just obey. In simplicity and in faith. We want to know what the Bible says and we want to know what the Bible teaches and we want to follow the examples that we read in the scriptures and just obey it. So here's an example. We have one uh, member of the congregation uh, who asked us to anoint them with oil and pray over them for a miracle of healing. Uh, they have some p- specific health struggles. Uh, they've kind of come to the end, it seems, of the, the, the help and benefit that uh, medical professionals are able to provide in medicine. And so, in faith, they asked the elders of this church to anoint them with oil and pray for their healing well, this is not something that's been done regularly or frequently in churches of Christ. But what does the Bible actually say about it? Just as Jesus, as he sends out disciples two by two, says in Mark 6 that they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them this anointing with oil and healing that come together. And then in James, this anointing with oil is tied to prayer, and God provides healing in these circumstances. Is any among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. Well, for whatever reason, a lot of churches of Christ, we have just simply not done this. And because we haven't seen this put into practice, and we're not used to it, it makes some of us a little bit uncomfortable. But because we read about it in the Bible, and we find precedent for it there in the scriptures, we're going to obey those scriptures in faith, even though it might make some of us a little uncomfortable. And we're going to do this this next Sunday. This brother who asked for anointing suggested that we could ask if there are others in the church who need healing. Come and find me. Come and talk to me. Talk to the office this week and let me know. And we're just going to, at the end of service next week, we're going to privately go aside. And for those who want to be involved, you may come and join as the elders anoint this sick person with oil or other sick people who need healing, and you desire that. You can ask for that. And we're just going to do that this next week, and uh, we're going to see what God does with it. It's a step of faith that we're taking. But we find that precedent there in Scripture, so we're going to do that. So if it makes you uncomfortable, you can excuse yourself. If you don't believe God that works that way, and you don't have faith that you want to participate in something like that, don't don't come. You're fine. You're free. You're, you're free in Christ. But if you would like to be a part of that, we're going to do that this next week. Okay. So back to Baptism. I say all that because, you know, when it comes to the issue of baptism, my desire is really to understand as clearly as possible the practice as it is described in the Bible and as it was put into practice in the early church. That is what I'm seeking. I'm not seeking Church of Christ doctrine. I want what the Bible teaches. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be discussing verses that talk about baptism. And I think there's just so much for us to learn. I've just been swimming in all this stuff this week. And my agenda with this, it isn't to prove anyone wrong or to promote some uh, strict legalistic works-based practice, uh, but just to responsibly represent the reasons why we practice baptism the way we do in this place. Baptism, it is a a sacrament. Jay was using the term emblem, referring to the elements of the Lord's Supper. By sacrament, I just mean that in the broadest sense of a Christian practice of great importance and significance. There's so much symbolism tied to Christian baptism. There's so much richness associated with it. It's given to us by God as a way to respond in faith to the free gift of grace and salvation offered to us in Jesus Christ. And as such, I personally believe that import, uh, that baptism, it is important, it is necessary, and it's a necessary and beautiful part of every disciple's life, and is also the normal means through which a person accepts Jesus and becomes a part of the Lord's Church. So can we at least acknowledge, a little common ground, before we jump in any deeper, what a beautiful thing baptism is, regardless of all the nuts and bolts of it. Before we get lost in words and theology and exegesis, The beauty of a person in faith committing their life to Jesus Christ in baptism, that's something that moves me to tears probably more than anything else regularly that we do. And I pray we never lose the beauty of what the Lord gives us in baptism through trying to figure out what the nuts and bolts of it all mean and where we draw the lines and things like that. So let me say a word about the sources that I'm drawing from. Uh, Preparing for baptism, becoming a part of the story of God's people. Uh, I have copies of this little book. It's just a great little summary to kind of get things started. So if you've got young people who are curious about baptism, if they're wanting to start learning about baptism, come and see me and I'll give you a free copy of this little book and you can start wrestling with these scriptures and understanding some of the history and things behind baptism. I think it'll be helpful. Another primary source is Baptism, What the Bible Teaches. This is a Renew.org resource. You've heard me refer to this organization before. It's a restoration uh, movement organization uh, for churches of Christ and Christian churches, uh, those who share this common heritage. Um, And it's just got some great information in it, and uh, I found it very helpful in trying to process what it is exactly that the scriptures teach us and say about baptism. Now, i got a lot of other sources as well uh, that I draw on, but uh, those are two of the main ones that we're looking at. All right. Listen to these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There's power in those words. There's beauty in those words. So according to this verse... What does a person need to do to have eternal life? They have to believe. Believe in who? Who do you have to believe in? <laughs> Jesus. All right. Thank you guys. We can have interaction, right? Can I get an amen? (laughs) So according to this verse, this gift of eternal life is for those who believe in Jesus. Is that all you have to do? Just decide one day that you want to be on Team Jesus and it's as simple as that? I would say, yes and no. It is as simple as that. But there's so much more going on. Yes and no. So hold on to this verse, John 3.16. Because there's other words that are spoken in this exact same conversation. In John 3.5, Jesus himself says this, Very truly I tell you, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Both of these fall under the same section of Scripture. It's this conversation that Jesus is having with a Pharisee named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Are these verses in tension with each other? I don't think the Apostle John thought these were in tension with each other. I don't think he thought these were in opposition and opposed to each other. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. To believe in Jesus, it means that we trust and follow him as both of our Lord and our Savior. He's the one in charge, and he can give us what no one else can give us. Well, just to kind of get everything, the cards out on the table, so to speak, what do we teach about baptism in this church? Now, of course, the elders can amend Uh, help me understand any of this better, but here's what I understand from the scriptures uh, as succinctly as possible, and my understanding of this congregation, I've been your minister now for over five years, what we teach and what we believe here at the Eugene Church of Christ. When we commit to trust and follow Jesus, we express this faith by repenting from sin, confessing Jesus' name, and receiving baptism by immersion in water. We believe that baptism as an expression of faith is for the remission of sins. And baptism is the normative means of entry into the life of discipleship and becoming a part of the Lord's Church. Baptism marks our commitment to regularly die to ourselves and rise to live for Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, And we believe that God sovereignly saves as he sees fit. Salvation is with God. It's not for us to pick and choose who God saves. And yet we are bound by Scripture to uphold the teaching that's around baptism, about surrendering to Jesus in faith through repentance, confession, and and through uh, baptism, being baptized. So if you want to snap a picture... Those are the scripture references uh, that talk about those things, that you can take uh, a time to look at and study if you like. So another way to say this is that we see baptism as the point at which we seal our decision and uh, to repent, to place our faith in Jesus Christ, and to commit ourselves to a pathway of discipleship, to receive God's forgiveness and the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. So here are the things that we're going to be talking about over the next two, three weeks. Understanding biblical baptism. But the act, What does the act of baptism look like? We're going to talk some about that. Uh, how that is associated with faith and is a response of faith. We're going to talk about the symbolism of baptism. It has symbols related to birth, marriage, death, resurrection. All these different things that are represented in the beauty of this act. Baptism, as it's associated again and again and again, and we'll look at some of these passages of conversion in the book of Acts. They always are tied to baptism. Baptism and repentance. Baptism and being tied to the remission of sins. There's something about the forgiveness of sins that is tied to uh, what we do in baptism. Baptism and the Holy Spirit. How does that work? How is, the, how is the Holy Spirit involved in what is going on in baptism? The etymology of the word baptize, I think we, we'd be fruitful if we just cover that a little bit. Not everyone knows uh, why we use that word. Why would we take a Greek word and keep it a Greek word and not translate it into English when they did the translations and stuff like that? So we'll talk about that a little bit, we'll talk about the way baptism has been used and done historically in the churches, and I'll try to represent as fairly as I can that process. Um, We're going to talk about the age of baptism, not for infants. We're going to talk about the means of baptism. The example that we find, the only example that we find in the scriptures itself is through immersion. That means being plunged or dipped and going under the water and then coming out of that water again. Uh, baptism versus the sinner's prayer. Um, you know, and I don't, I'm not trying to step on toes of the evangelical world. I think sinner's prayers are great. I don't think a sinner's prayer is a substitute for Christian baptism. Um, I'm going to talk about the issues about when a person maybe would consider being rebaptized, and what that looks like. Uh, we're going to look at scriptures that seem to tie together things related to baptism and the way God works in salvation. Salvation is the Lord's. He chooses what he's going to do with that. And yet, there's some scripture we need to look at. Another one is the way that baptism ties into a part of a life of discipleship. It's not the end of the journey. It marks a beginning, and uh, it marks this life of continual confession and repentance and renewal. And we mark those, uh, that new journey's beginning through our baptism. And then I want to talk just about the way baptism, it really is for us a beautiful celebration And I don't want to lose that in the woods of the nuts and bolts. So, clearly, this is a tall order I'm taking on. And uh, I would love for your prayers in the upcoming weeks to help me articulate the truth of Scripture just as plainly as I can. And I hope uh, that you can pray that for me, even if potentially you find something that I say to be challenging. Uh, So let's talk about briefly about... Faith, and the way faith works in baptism for a moment. Faith, what is it? Faith is trust. Faith, I would say, is never just an idea that stays in your mind and never goes anywhere else, that never has any movement to it. Faith, when it is real, is always going to try to find ways to express itself. Look at this verse from Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast." Saved by grace through what? Through faith. That those that grace is accessed through our faith. Um, I don't know what's the best way I could illustrate this. All right, I got my wallet here. What's in my wallet? I never know these days. Okay. I have I have a20 dollar bill. Who would like a free20 dollar bill? <laughs> Who? Aubrey? All right. guy looks a little more desperate than his mom. Thank you. All right. Don't say I never gave you anything. I was really disappointed I didn't have a five in there, because that's what I would have given you otherwise. Was that a free gift? Probably. have to do to get that free gift? He raised his hand, and he reached out, and he took a hold of it, didn't he? I know that's not a perfect analogy, but baptism is the way we respond to the amazing free gift of grace and forgiveness of sin that's in Jesus Christ. That is our way. Jesus comes to each of us, and he is like, here you go. And the scriptures describe baptism as our way of taking hold in faith of that free gift of the grace of God made available to us uniquely in Jesus Christ. So baptism in that sense, it's not a work. It's not a work in the sense that by doing this ritual, I have initiated my own salvation by my own power that I can now boast about it. Baptism is not a work like that. But I would say that baptism is something necessary for us to do because faith demands it and Jesus Christ commands it. Baptism is not a magic work of merit that in and of itself has the power to save us. Baptism is an act of faith through which we grab a hold of the free gift of grace offered to us in Jesus Christ. So at its simplest, baptism is something that Jesus himself did. And it's something that he commanded his disciples to do so in faith, we practice it and we do it. No one, when they are baptized, comes out of that water boasting and saying, look what I've done. But any every one of us who chooses baptism, in the very act of doing that, you are declaring, look what Jesus Christ has done for me. look what he's done for me. So to close this morning, we're going to look more at some verses in John's Gospel, John chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anna near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. (coughs) Excuse me. Let me point out in verse 23 why did they go to this place? Because there was plenty of water. That means that immersion in water was important enough to them that they were willing to travel to a place where there's a lot of water. If all you're doing is sprinkling or pouring, you don't need to travel anywhere. You don't need to go looking for a place where there's lots of water. This was important enough for both John and Jesus that they're willing to travel to a place where there's lots of water. That's the first thing I want to point out from these verses. Let's go on. All right, I'll do a quick aside with that. Some of you know I was a missionary in Tanzania, East Africa, and a quick missionary story. I saw this at work all the time during dry season. We had two seasons in Tanzania, northern Northern Tanzania. It's in East Africa. We had dry season and we had rainy season. Rainy season, we found water all over the place. Dry season, to find enough water to actually bury someone in it and immerse them, we had to walk, sometimes hours, hours, Sometimes big groups of people. The longest, I think, we walked one time was, uh, uh, it was well over an hour. Anything longer than that, I would say, like, I'll carry as many of you as, as I can on my Toyota Land Cruiser, and uh, I'll come back and get other people so we can speed this along. And uh, we would go. But what a testimony of faith that was because when we baptized people, we weren't usually baptizing one or two people. We were baptizing people by the 10s, 20s, 50s, up to 100 people at a time. And that joyous throng of a church walking along these back rural roads in the middle of nowhere Africa, singing songs of praise to Jesus Christ, looking for water, To be buried with Him in baptism, it is one of the most joyous and beautiful events of my life. In my memories, looking back over that ministry, I have great joy in remembering that. And we walked, and we walked these long distances down dusty roads to find a place that there was enough water that a person could go under that water and be buried again or be buried in a watery grave and pulled up and risen again to a new life. It was beautiful. It was celebratory. It was joyous. Sometimes it was gross because a cattle irrigation pond in the middle of a dry season, I would go into that water, I would baptize people, and I would come out with leeches stuck to my legs. And those cesspools that I stepped into, we washed people cleaner than they had ever been in their entire life. And newness of life was tied to what we were doing. As we, in that act, demonstrated a death to self And a raising of new to new life and resurrection. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the manner of of a matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look. He's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. You see, Jesus and John were both overseeing ministries for a short window of time. They were both active together. They were both in this place, an area where they were seeking plenty of water so that they could baptize because baptism was important to both of these men's ministries. So now that these two ministries, these two, these, they, they each have disciples, they're stepping on each other's toes a little bit. At least that's the way John's disciples felt about it. John's disciples come to him because they're not happy because Jesus is getting all the crowd. Jesus is getting all the crowd. Everyone's going over to team Jesus and they're upset about it. But look at John's response. And this is why I love John the Baptist so much. A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Do you see the beauty of that humility? Do you see what that humility allows to be born? Those disciples are being taught a critical lesson by John the Baptist. What a beautiful thing. So right away we learn that John sees his baptism and his ministry and his teaching, for that matter, as lesser than the fullness that is to come after him. There's something better coming. He understands that his role is preparatory. He's helping pave the way for something greater that is to follow. And then he brings in this analogy of a wedding, wedding language. Wedding, there's a celebration at hand. There's a food that's been prepared. There's a beautiful bride waiting, waiting for this marriage ceremony to happen, waiting for her groom to to come. So typically a best man at that wedding, he would be in charge of a lot of these wedding preparations. But the bride is there. She's all decked out. She's beautiful. But for that friend the joy of union with that bride, it's not, it does not belong to him. And he does not covet it. It's for his friend. And before he can even see that friend, he hears the voice and is filled with joy. Because he knows the joy of his friend. Listen some more to the humility of John. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. So the difference between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, it is the distance between heaven and earth. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. There's no limit. There's no turning down the spigot between the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. That's full and complete and total. So at this early time, even though everything was not clear about everything that would come to pass, you know, John, he is a prophet, and as a prophet, he knew certain things. It seems that he understood that one of the key differences between his ministry and his baptism and Jesus' ministry and Jesus' baptism, it had something to do with the Holy Spirit that the Spirit of God himself would be associated with one and not the other in a special and beautiful way. So how many people had John baptized, do you think? Either John or his disciples? Probably not a few. Probably all kinds of people. All kinds of... I mean, even throughout the, the time that the New Testament is written, John's disciples are popping up all over the place and running into to disciples of Jesus at later times, even. In baptism, it says another thing about that was that uh, when John baptized, it was for repentance, but it was also to reveal the Messiah. Because the prophet John had been told ahead of time, there's going to be one eventually that you come across and you're going to see the Spirit of God rest on him in the form of a dove. This is my Messiah. John was looking for this. John spent... Months, years, we don't know, baptizing people, looking for the one who would be marked as God's own Messiah through this miraculous sign of the Holy Spirit coming on him. And uh, eventually that does take place. And whoa, that must have been something else when he realized that it was his own cousin. He thought he knew his cousin. But he didn't know Jesus until he was revealed in that baptism and a voice spoke from heaven. And John rejoices. And John is so struck by it That it's easy for him to say, he must become great and I must become less. That is the spirit that leads us to the kind of faith that leads a person to want to be born again and baptized into the body of Christ. In chapter 1, he said this, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. There's something special about what God's Messiah is going to be able to do versus what John himself could do. One was preparing the way, the other is the fulfillment of it. And another thing that's amazing to me, John knew, he doesn't say his baptism and his ministry can deal with sins. He's still under Jewish law, God alone deals with sin. But when he sees Jesus, he says, "Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Something about what Messiah does is going to deal with people's sin. And he recognizes that sin is a problem. But John the Baptizer knew also that every person's destiny comes down to what they decide to do with Jesus Christ. All people who have lived and died, lived, walked this earth, died, they're going to have to decide what they're going to do with Jesus Christ. John the Baptizer says this, the Father loves the Son who has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So I talk about these verses because I found it very helpful for me. It just, they're beautiful stories. They're rich stories. But uh, I, I think it also, if you read between the lines a little bit, and... Uh, really try to understand John chapter 3 and John chapter 1. It seems like John the Baptist seemed to understand some differences between his ministry and Jesus' ministry. John's baptism, it was by immersion. But it was p- to prepare the way for the ministry of the Messiah. And so in some sense, he understood that what he was doing, it was temporary. It was not a permanent thing. And the purpose, John himself says, for that was to reveal Messiah because he had received some instructions through the Holy Spirit himself about what that was going to look like through God. And we can read elsewhere uh, where it talks about John's baptism was for the sake of repentance. Well, what about Jesus' baptism? this new baptism that's coming along and all of the crowd seems to be going to Jesus. And even this is before the fullness of everything that happens with the cross and the resurrection. But already at this time, there is a baptism that is being performed by Jesus' For It was by immersion. It was for repentance. It was something that was, it was representing a permanent thing that was starting now and would continue in force. It is for the forgiveness of sins. And no doubt there's mystery yet how this would all work out. John never got to see all of this. He lost his head before that happened. But he could see that this new ministry in the Messiah was somehow tied in a special way to the Holy Spirit in a way his ministry never was. And it's, this ministry was tied to the person of Jesus Christ himself. In the name of Jesus. So all of these, these are the, this is like a picture of what Christian baptism and what, what, is, happen, what is growing up that becomes part of the fullness of uh, uh, this beautiful act of baptism. That is a central part of the life of the disciples of Jesus that we carry on throughout history all the way up to this time and will continue in force until Christ himself returns. All right, Brother Pitt, you can come up. That's what I got for us this week. I hope that... Uh, What we're able to look at in weeks coming, that'll be a helpful thing for us, it's feel free to come and talk to me. Uh, Again, I've got some of those books there. I've got copies of my sermon available if you want that, those. I've got lists of scripture that you can look at to help study some of this stuff yourself. Uh, And of course, I'm free to help dialogue or I will put any of our elders on the line for that too. Uh, just come and talk to us. And we want to figure this out. And we want to do it in a way that honors our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we always offer an invitation in this church uh, to put on the Lord in baptism as a, as a means that you become a part of this church family. And uh, we also offer prayers for those who want prayers. Next week, we're just going to obey Scripture, and if you want some kind of uh, anointing and healing from the elders and the prayers of this church, uh, you come and talk to me, and we'll we'll make time to set that up for after next Sunday, after the service next Sunday. So you let me know how I can help you. I'll be up here in the front, and let's go ahead now and stand and sing our invitation song.